Uh, going to continue in on Ephesians, uh, just picking up where Richie had left off. Today we're talking about Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, if you want to follow along. Um, again, kind of before we get going, I think it really is important, and we do this really every week just to give you a real quick context. Everything that we're talking about in Ephesians is in the context of what has been said before. As we've talked about, really, chapters 1 and 3 are really filled with the unfathomable truths of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished, what he himself coming to earth as the son of God accomplished and what he had accomplished in us. That's really what chapters one through three are. It's the supernatural realities. And I've really appreciated kind of that terminology that Richie has used the last couple of weeks. These are supernatural and they are realities. That's what chapters one through three are about, that Christ has done and accomplished in himself, through himself, and in us. Um, when I talked about uh, different parts of chapter 3 uh, in Ephesians back in June, I mentioned a book by Watchman Nee. It's called Sit, Walk, Stand. And it's really unpacking the whole message of Ephesians, where chapter 1 to 3 is really talking about sitting, that you and I need to sit, to rest. Just like Richie, again, has talked before about the chairs that you're sitting in. If you pick your feet up and you just rest in that chair, you're trusting in the work that that chair is doing in holding you up. So chapters in 1, one through 3 are really about sitting, you and I resting and sitting in the truths and realities that are presented. Presented in chapters 1 through 3. Walking is really what we're looking at now, chapters 4, 5, and part of 6, where we take that resting, sitting position that we have in Christ and we make it real in our lives, in the flesh and blood, in how do we live our lives today. That's what walking is, but you can only walk if you have learned to sit first. And then the last is standing, and we'll get to that in chapter 6, where it's really talking about our position against the devil, our position of standing firm because of who we are in Christ, because of the walk that we have, we can then stand in confidence and stand firm against the works of Satan. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at a number of things, how we are called to imitate our Father, to walk in love, to walk as children of light, to be wise and not foolish, and to make the most of every opportunity, just last week, this notion of redeeming the time. But today we're going to be talking about Ephesians five eighteen to 21, which says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. So we're going to uh, look at um, kind of these passages through three questions. We're going to answer three questions over the course of our time together. The first question is, what do we do in light of these verses? The second question is, how do we do it? And the third question is, after we know what to do and how to do it, where does that leave us? So let's look at the first question. What do we do? Um, in verse 18, it says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. So the answer to the question about what we do first starts with something we shouldn't do. Um, and then we'll get into what we actually do do. Um, and it starts with drinking. 
So why? Why does Paul say, and you know, to not get drunk? Well, really, this gets to a very real problem that was taking place in the church in Ephesus. Um, the Ephesians, before they were believers, um, worshipped the Greek god Dionysus, and Dionysus is the god of uh, the of the vine, the god of religious ecstasy, the god of wine, and so this was a common, um, actually even religious experience to get drunk, and they felt as pagans that they were actually participating with the Greek god Dionysius. And so frankly, some of this just kind of brought itself into the expression of the Christian faith when some of these Ephesians got saved. So they were just kind of doing things they shouldn't be doing and continuing kind of this practice. So Paul was actually addressing a real problem that was taking place within the Ephesian church. But the bigger picture really is um, not just about getting drunk, because that's just one example. But if we go back to Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, 5, Paul said this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So what Paul's really talking about, and the context in which even this comment about being drunk, is really talking about anything that we covet. Anything that we make in our hearts more important than Jesus is, that is the definition of idolatry. When we take something that often is a good thing, but we make it an ultimate thing, that becomes an idol in our hearts and becomes more important to us than Jesus. Um, Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says this, The Bible says that the human heart is an idol factory. When many people think of idols, they have in mind uh, literal statues, little statues you know, that were, in fact, idols, or the next pop star appointed or anointed by Simon Cowell. Yet, traditional idol worship still occurs in many places in the world. Internal idol worship within the heart is universal. In Ezekiel 14.3, God says about the elders of Israel, These men have set up their idols in their hearts. Like us, the elders must have responded to this charge, idols? What idols? I don't see any idols. They're talking about the little statues. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, like love, like material possessions, even our families, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain those things. So Paul is talking about, in the book of Ephesians, about a clear and present danger. And he's really talking about any idolatry, not just getting drunk, but anything that we have made ultimate, anything that we have put our hearts in and made more important than Jesus, any idolatry in our lives. And to be honest, it's really not that easy sometimes to identify. Our culture really seems to make certain idols or certain pursuits okay and says that no it's a good thing to pursue these things is what our culture can say and to be honest sometimes we ourselves can put blinders on and kind of justify our own behavior and our own choices and the things that we pursue in life as well but we really need to ask the lord to remove our blinders to remove our blindness to shed light in our hearts and to show us when and where we have set up idols and to be honest, when I sat down and just kind of self-reflected, I had to, re- and I, it's, I had to really admit, and this is kind of 
embarrassing, but when I looked at what is something that really is idolatrous in my own heart, it's comfort and security. Um, I just really look at myself and I, when I think in terms of comfort in life, comfort in my circumstances, security in my circumstances, money in the bank, those things are things that honestly I have to wrestle with. Have I made those things more important in my heart, in my life than Jesus? Am I putting my trust, my faith, my confidence, my security, find my meaning in comfort and security or do I find it in Jesus? So that for me personally, that was what I had to wrestle with. So I got thinking of my wife. And she told me yesterday, don't use me as an example. (laughs) Sorry, honey. But (laughs) I will get it when I get home. But, you know, hey, I'm up here, you know. So Um, so don't come running up. But... uh, So, uh, but seriously, when I thought of Kathy, like what idols would I think Kathy has? I couldn't think of any. Is that like awesome or not? But then I did think of one that maybe comes close and it was shopping. If I had to think of anything and think, okay, what's the one idol that Kathy might have? I'm going with shopping, you know? So whatever it is, shopping, comfort, uh, security, those things that we make good things. It's good to go shopping. It's good to have comfort. The Lord has blessed us with security, but it has to be in him, not in things of this world. So why is this a big deal? Why is this notion of idolatry? Why does it matter? Because in our hearts, in our beliefs, in the deepest parts of our soul, anytime that we put something else in the place of providing what only God himself can provide, then we're making a big mistake. We're trying to depend on something other than him to provide that only he can find. We will never, we will never experience freedom in Christ until we identify and destroy those idols in our lives, until Christ alone is on the throne of our hearts, until Christ alone is our life, which is what he promises to be, then we will struggle with this. So what does Paul tell us as an alternative? How are we set free? What should we do now? So uh, continuing on in verse 18, he says, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? Frankly, the Holy Spirit sometimes gets a little bit of a, a kind of a, you know, a kind of a short shrift, I think, in the Trinity. You know, we know all talk about Jesus a lot and the Father, but the Holy Spirit is par- a person, is a living spiritual being, part of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, often referred to in Scripture even as the Spirit of Jesus. In John 14, uh, it says this, Uh, Jesus says, I will ask my father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells in you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus is even saying that in the Holy Spirit coming, when we believe it is the spirit of Jesus that has come into our hearts. And again, in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are not our own. That's what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians. We don't belong. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to God when you have put your faith in him. We have been purchased. We've been redeemed. We've been set free. Everything that we have now belongs to God. 
And referring to this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, um, again, Watchman Nee in his book, The Normal Christian Life, says this. This verse now takes us a stage further. For when once we have made the discovery of the fact that we are the dwelling place of God, then a full surrender of ourselves to God must follow. When we are that temple of God, we shall see, we shall immediately recognize that we are not our own. Consecration will follow revelation. The difference between victorious Christians and defeated ones is not that some have the spirit while others have not, but that some know his indwelling and others do not. And consequently, some recognize the divine ownership of their lives while others are still their own masters. So what do we need to do? We need to believe. We need to believe, to walk in, to recognize his divine ownership of our lives, every aspect of our lives, and that that is only through the powerful work of the indwelling spirit. In verse 18, Paul tells us to be filled with the spirit. And the Greek word specifically relative to being filled is talking about a continuous filling. It's not just fill it up and you're done. It's a constant pouring, a continuous, uh, a constant filling, not just once, but being continually fi- filled up by the Holy Spirit. So I brought example exhibit A, okay? So what this is really saying is that if this is me, this is my spirit, And this is the Holy Spirit that he is filling me up to the top. But the realities are that in life, honestly, just through things I do and wandering away from the Lord and being distracted and whatever, I got a little hole in here, but it's leaking really slowly. So there's slow leaks. But the idea is that the Holy Spirit is constantly filling me up. It's a continual constant filling that is taking place all the time, frankly, even to overflowing. So that's the visual picture of what that idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit is all about. So Jesus talks about this in John 7, where Jesus says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. He was yelling, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said, the rivers of living water about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So it's by believing in Jesus that we will be filled and constantly filled and continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus cried out, Those of you who thirst, are you thirsty? Are you right now this morning sitting at home? Are you thirsty for the Lord Jesus Christ? Thirsty for truth, thirsty for meaning, thirsty for purpose, thirsty for honesty, for direction in your life. The answer is believing in Jesus. He says, come to me and drink. He promises to satisfy us when we come to him. He promises that out of our hearts will come 
will flow living water. The Holy Spirit is that living water that will cause us to do the things we've been talking about, to walk in a manner that is worthy of him. It is the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts that will cause us to walk in love the same way that Christ has loved us, loved us. To walk as children of light because now in him we are light that will cause us to walk wisely, to redeem the kairos, the time, the opportunities that God gives us. So if that's your heart's desire, you do that by being filled with the Spirit, by letting Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, be your life. So that's what we need to do. How do we do it? How do we go about doing that? So Paul in verses 19 to 20 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's really two things Paul is saying here, two ways that we'll accomplish that we actually do this supernatural work, this supernatural realities of being filled with the Holy Spirit. One is with our hearts. And the second one is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So before we unpack kind of those two ideas, uh, Paul also just gives us some tangible, practical ideas about ways that we can actually experience the power of the indwelling spirit. The first one he talks about is singing, singing psalms and hymns and worship songs, making a melody in your heart to the Lord. Um, and seriously, how many of you find just in the course of your day, in the course of your life, that singing is a way that will draw you into the presence of the Lord? Anybody? Raise your hands. A lot of people do. And I know for me, throughout the duration of my, my faith journey, singing is just something that brings me into the presence of the Lord. So that's a tangible, practical way that we can actually pursue and come into and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul also tells us that another way to be filled with the Spirit is to give thanks always and for everything in the name of Jesus. Uh, this be, is being set free from being held hostage by our circumstances. Even what we're going on right now with COVID and just all the odd, weird things that are going on right now. We can be free from all the circumstances that are surrounding and swirling around us and be able to give thanks for everything all the time. We do experience tough times. All of us have times in difficult, uh, of life that are difficult. But what do we do in our hearts when life is that way? In 1 Thessalonians 5, this is really a concise answer to that question. What do we do in our hearts when life is difficult? We rejoice always. We pray without ceasing. We give thanks in all circumstances because this is the will of God. It's the will of God for me. It's the will of God for you in Jesus Christ. And if we don't do that, we do quench the spirit, which we're encouraged certainly not to. So there's lots of other practical ways. We're not going to go in them today, but praying and meditating um, on scripture, um, reading scripture and meditating on it, being in fellowship with one another. There's lots of practical, tangible things that we can do in this life to encounter and f be filled with the Holy Spirit. But we're just going to talk about those two that Paul mentioned in this verse. Um, so Paul doesn't tell us just to do these things. So it's not just go out and do these things, but he tells us that we need to do all of these things, one from our hearts and two in the power of the name of Jesus. 
So if you think if you think about this, no matter who's preaching here, we always get back to this issue of the heart. That any type of work that God does in our lives, everything that we learn, everything that we come to understand about the Lord, everything that we come to know about God has got to be something that changes our hearts. Why do we say that? Why do we talk about that so much? Because it's really easy to forget. It's really easy to just wander away. Like I said at the very beginning, it's just one of those simple core truths that I have to be reminded of over and over and over again. Anything I come to know about the Lord, anything I learn in scripture, any teaching that I receive, I have got to take that and bring it into my heart. My heart has got to respond. My heart has got to change in respect to whatever it is that I'm I'm interacting with because our hearts honestly left to themselves. We are not naturally drawn to the Lord, but God is ready and willing to come to us to draw our hearts to himself. All we have to do is be willing and we need to ask him. And whenever you find your heart, perhaps not close to the Lord, having just wandered some ways away, we can pray. I just find this prayer of Solomon in first Kings eight. So, um, so amazing as it relates to this. So out of this is first Kings eight. Solomon says, may the Lord, our God be with us as he has been with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us so that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinance, which he commanded our fathers. God is the one who will draw our hearts to himself. God is the one who will incline our hearts to himself when we come and we ask, when we are willing to let him do that. And I know for me, myself, when I think about it, honestly, you know, I can get really distracted. Even when I'm sitting here and worshiping, if I'm reading scripture, if I am spending time praying, it's so easy for my mind to wander off to whatever's going to be happening next. What am I going to do? What am I having for lunch? What did somebody say to me just a little while ago? It's so easy to get distracted anytime I am trying to engage and encounter the spirit. And what the Lord wants to do is when we ask him, he will draw us and incline our hearts to himself. And I also think, frankly, really a lot, I thought about an example, just a really good friend of Kathy and mine, uh, Marianne Ellis. Uh, she and I and Kathy have been down to Haiti quite a few times, and I thought about Marianne when, when she's in Haiti, and I just have these pictures in my mind of conversations that she has, people that she interacts with, meals that she might have, just walking uh, along a, a dirt road in Haiti. And Marianne is one of these women who just her heart when we're in Haiti is in absolutely everything that we do. Every word that comes out of her mouth is coming out of her heart. Every person she looks at and interacts with, her heart is being given and poured out to that person. Everything that happens, frankly, some things that are just not very pleasant or very hard, but her heart is just present before the Lord in everything that we do there, good or bad, hard or easy. And again, it's just something that that attitude and that ability to have your heart just in God's hands all the time is something that he'll do for us. He will bring us to him when we ask, and we will learn more and more how to do that.
So God, Paul goes on to explain that everything that he's been talking about must be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this before. Does that mean that when you talk or when you pray, you need to end in those words in the name of Jesus Christ? There's nothing wrong with doing that. But no, that's not what it means. There's nothing magical about saying in the name of Jesus Christ at the end of a prayer. What he's really talking about is the power that is in the name Jesus. Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus, is powerful, has power, and his name has power. When you think, frankly, back into, you know, just early stories in Acts where, you know, Paul or, not Paul, Peter, John, and James would go out and they would heal someone. They literally would look at the person and just say, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up. It was the power of the name of Jesus that healed, that set free. Um, and any time that scripture refers to that concept of in the name of Jesus, it's talking about that power, the power that's given to those who believe, that's given to you, that's given to me. It's his name, it is his power, but it's given to us through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus came as a man, that he died, that he rose again and ascended to the Father. And one writer puts it this way, in the name of Jesus is an acknowledgement of the believer's position in Jesus Christ and an understanding of our prayers are heard as we approach the throne of grace. It is in obedience to the command of Jesus, for we cannot pray in our own standing, but we pray in his. God alone made it possible for you to be in Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Christ to be wisdom. He is the one who made us acceptable to God, and he made us pure and holy, and he gave himself to purchase our freedom. So here we are. We've been reminded about what we need to do, which is not finding our meaning, our purpose, our value, our identity, our security in anything in the world, not in any idols, and casting our idols aside. We've also been reminded that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have a constant, a continual filling of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, to be turning to him to be filled over and over again, constantly by the Holy Spirit. And we do this, Paul reminded us, by choosing to give our hearts entirely to him in every uh, just role that the Lord has given us. Are you a parent? Are you an employee? Are you an employer? Are you a friend? Are you a leader? Are you a spouse? Are you a citizen? Are you a follower? We're all all sorts of different things in this life, but it's the Lord asking us to put all of our hearts into the work that he has given us to do and to do all of those things in the name of Jesus based on our position in him and the power that we have in the Holy Spirit. So lastly, the third question is, where does this leave us? We've talked about what to do. We've talked about how to do it. So where does that leave us? And to be honest, I think this is almost like the coolest part of this whole passage, because it's really talking about the supernatural outcome of everything that we've been talking about. And it's in verse 21 that says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So first in the beginning of Ephesians, we've been enlightened to our, in, in, we've been enlightened in our inner being. For Ephesians early talked about, about the supernatural truths in, uh, chapters one to three. That's our position in him, that we are a new creation, that we are seated in Christ in the heavenly places, and that that is real and true right now on Sunday morning at 
10.55. Second, we have understanding about how that plays out in our lives. That we need to die to ourselves, to our old selves. We need to crucify our flesh by not allowing idols in our lives, but being filled with the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God, and the Holy Spirit to lead us, to teach us, to correct us, to transform us. And all of that work of who we are in Christ and how that plays out in our lives. It culminates in this verse 21 that is our posture of submitting to one another. That's how it plays out in our lives. Paul, as we move into uh, more in, in further in chapter 21 after after chapter, in chapter 5 after verse 21, Paul's about to move into some of the most wonderful passages about human relationships, how we relate to one another, how we relate to one another as husbands and wives, how we relate to one another as parents, as children, as employers, as employees, as friends. And these upcoming verses, frankly, I'm glad Richie is the one who gets to kind of unpack that because it's going to be fun, I'm sure. But honestly, these verses that Richie's going to be getting into, I believe, are very misunderstood and very misapplied, I think, in, in our culture and has been over the centuries. Because the reality is that the submission that it's talking about is really an incredible act of love. It's comparing all of those relationships to the relationship that Christ has with his church. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great foundation of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. So he's talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit within the Trinity itself. And uh, Tim Keller adds on to or kind of expands on what C.S. Lewis said by saying this, The inner life of the triune God, however, is utterly different. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into the dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. That creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us. Each of the divine persons centers on the other. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders in the Greek church had a word for this. Perichoresis. Notice the root of our word choreography within it. It literally means to dance or flow around. And looking in Philippians 2, where I think scripturally we really pull out this truth, Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours, is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So where that leaves us in light of these verses in Ephesians 5 is humbly loving one another based on who we are in Christ, based on the work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, it manifests itself in a humble love for one another, in serving one another, in submitting to one another, because of what Christ has done, and in the same way that Christ has loved us, serves us, and obeyed even to the point of death. What a joy and what a privilege that that is to be able to submit in love to one another in all of our relationships, to be looking out for the needs, the interests of our spouses, of our kids, of our friends, of our employees, of our employers, of the community around us, humbly loving and serving those around us. But more on that next week, and we'll save that for Richie. So we're going to move into communion, just a time to reflect on the things that you've heard this morning, the things that the Lord may have spoken to you. Um, I do want to remind you about a couple of things. Um, one is that if you didn't happen to get a cup, we've got a couple of people with uh, bowls. If you need a communion cup, just raise your hand and we'll make sure they get brought around to you over here. Uh, and then obviously when you open them, the trick is uh, open the bread first and you might want to take it out and then open the juice because if you open the juice first and turn it over not going to be a pretty sight. So uh, just as a reminder. So again, uh, this is just going to be an opportunity for you to reflect on what the Lord may have just talked to you about this morning. During the song, you can take the uh, uh, communion as you see fit. You don't need to wait for us to announce it or say that this is the time to do it. So sometime during the upcoming song, feel free to take it at your leisure. And just, I encourage you just to take the elements to really stop and just enter into the Holy Spirit. Think about the work that Christ has done for you. Think about all that that means and how we can walk in the Spirit and love Him more than anything else in this life. So I encourage you to enjoy your time in taking communion.